16th of March 1990. Security guards at a Boston art gallery let in police responding to a disturbance call. Problem is, there is no disturbance and the cops are fake. This is the story of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum theft. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, no stalkers tonight, but something a little different. I must say that I have had more feedback over the stalking episodes than any other topic, and that was the reason I brought you those cases. But first, but first, about the recent events in Christchurch, New Zealand. Actually, it's not an event or an incident, it is a massacre. As the news has been unfolding, I've been trying to keep up to date with it all. I'm sure everyone has heard about it. At 1.40pm Friday the 15th, Australian Brenton Tarrant, 28, entered the Masjid Al-Noor Mosque at 101 Deans Avenue, Rickerton, Christchurch, opposite South Hagley Park. He'd driven his Subaru there, parked in a small laneway adjacent to the property, now, that laneway was the access for a battle axe block containing new houses. All this is being shown on Facebook Live, as he has what must be a GoPro or something attached to a helmet he's wearing. While driving there, you can see he has several weapons, their rifles all emblazoned with writing, with references to historic struggles. It looks like it's against the Muslim faith. Now, I have seen the video. If you do view the video, just be warned that it is not only surreal, it is is horrific, horrific. The New Zealand police have been very active in getting the video taken down and I'm not about to get into a censorship debate today. So if you do watch the video, just be warned, it is more disturbing than you think. Before he set out on his crusade, Tarrant posted his manifesto online, and I'm not going to read it out here, but I will read out how he describes himself. He says, I'm just an ordinary white man, 28 years old, born in Australia to a working class, low income family. My parents are of Scottish, Irish and English stock. I had a regular childhood without any great issues. I had little interest in education during my schooling, barely achieving a passing grade. I did not attend university as I had no great interest in anything offered in the universities to study. I worked for a short time before making some money investing in BitConnect, then used the money from the investment to travel. I won't read the next line, but he then the next line after that is, I am just a regular white man from a regular family who decided to take a stand to ensure a future for my people. 
So that's what he's got to say. Like I said, I'm not going to read it all out. It is a white supremacist manifesto. Tarrant had spent the last couple of years planning the attack and in the last few months had decided to change the location from Dunedin to Christchurch. In fact, it looks like originally he was going to enact this attack, this attack in Australia, but he did go to New Zealand and found that that was the place he was going to do it. It all has to do with his ideas on cultural diversity, birth rates between races and all that. Like I said, I'm not going to go into too much about his reasons, but the general gist was to make New Zealand, and for that matter, all Western nations, or any that are ethnically and culturally European, to wake up to the Muslimization of their culture. So that's what he was all about. Anyway, I, like I said, I think I have said too much now. I don't want to give him a platform at all. Tarrant arrives at the Masjid Al-Nur Mosque at 1.40pm. As I said, the place is full of worshippers doing their prayers. He parks his car in the side alley, opens up the back hatch and selects his weapons. It looks like he has several assault rifles, probably AR-15s. He does also have a shotgun. He's got several magazines strapped to his body, all covered in white painted rants, as I said, about historical events involving Muslims. He says, remember lads, subscribe to PewDiePie. Now that's a reference to the YouTube streamer who has no connection at all to the massacre. He goes into the mosque firing at anyone in his sights. As he walks up the hallway, he continues to fire. People are running, but a lot of them hit the ground, and sadly, most of these people will die. He re- he reloads several times. He goes back outside, gets another gun, gets more ammo, and then goes back inside the mosque. He's still firing at those he thinks are still alive. Now, this attack lasts about 10 minutes. 42 people will die at this location. At this time, police are yet to, to arrive. This is... He's only been going for minutes. He then leaves and gets in his car and drives six kilometres east to the Linwood Masjid Mosque. He's seen firing out from the front windscreen of the car on the way and then he grabs a shotgun. He's also firing out the side window. He arrives at the mosque and again starts to shoot people, people praying. Luckily, he went to the wrong entrance and most people are able to lock themselves in a room away from Tarrant after they were being warned by other people outside. Still, eight people will die. This stage, police now have two crime scenes with an unknown number of shooters. Police eventually track him down about five kilometres away at Strickland Street, uh, Spraden, and force his car off the road after he leaves the Linwood Masjid Mosque. Several IEDs were defused by the bomb squad. Now, they are allegedly linked to Tarrant. In total, there's 50 dead, a similar number in hospital with gunshot wounds. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was quick to condemn the killings and this was echoed around the world by most politicians. We do have one in Australia who got egged this week because he's such a dickhead with his comments. Anyway, Tarrant Shackled appeared in court and charged with one count of murder, but as the judge said, there will be many more charges to follow. So people might say, how did he get the firepower to carry out this terror act? Well, I'm not 
up on all the gun laws, but from what I read, all these guns are legal to own with the right license, and it looks like he had the Type A license required. This will obviously reignite the gun control debate in New Zealand, just like Port Arthur massacre did in Australia back in April 1996, in which 35 people were killed and 23 wounded. Several properties in Australia, around from where he was from in Grafton, have been raided by the Australian police, obviously trying to piece together why Tarrant went rogue, and I suppose to try to see if he has any connections to others. They raided his mum's house. But this looks like a lone wolf operation, and they are always hard to detect by authorities. I'm sure we will hear a lot more about this as time goes on. I think Tarrant will plead not guilty, so he gets to use the courtroom as a platform. And I think there was something in the paper about that. There are reports from the shooting range that he was using, the Bruce Rifle Club in South Otago, that members noticed he was a bit off while he practised. He was reported to the club owners, but really there's nothing much they could do. I'm not sure if they reported him to the police or not, but... uh, See, look, although New Zealand had one of the most permissive gun laws in the region, they also had very low firearm fatalities. So, you know, I don't know what if tighter gun laws will make any change at all. There are already theories on this being a false flag operation to enact stricter gun laws in New Zealand. Now, I say to anyone who thinks this was a drill that you really do need to watch the video. There's no way this was a drill. Now, I was asked to put my tinfoil hat on this week on Facebook, but really, you do need to put your tinfoil hat on if you're going to think this was a false flag operation. It goes without saying that our thoughts and prayers are with the friends, families, and victims in all of this. Now, this was a big news week. Amongst it, we had the sentencing of George Pell, the pedo priest, formerly the number number three at the Vatican. Then we had all the hype about the Madeleine McCann documentaries on Netflix and the Australian podcast, Maddie. Now, I may bring you the George Pell case at a later date, and I was about to do the Madeleine McCann case, but now the McCann case I will put off for quite a while. It is very complex. I want to get it right and I don't want to just jump on the Maddie bandwagon anyway. So that was it for that awful news. Now we'll get back to the show. So tonight for something completely different, an art heist. It's one of those things that makes a great movie. Get a team of likely lads together, hatch a plan, and then audaciously put it into action. Steal the loot and then divvy it up and retire to some island paradise. That's what I really want to do. Well, there was the great train robbery robbery of 1963 where 2.6 million pounds was stolen from the Royal Mail train from Glasgow Central on its way to Euston Station in London. In today's money, that's over 50 million pounds. However, two known gangs the South West Gang and the South Coast Riders, plus an assortment of other rellos and friends were needed to pull off the robbery. 
There was more than 16 in all, including the infamous Ronnie Biggs. When you have that many people involved, you have a much greater chance of getting caught. And so they did, as one by one, nearly all of them would do time. But tonight is about an art heist. Now, art heists are quite a bit different to stealing wads of cash. Anything in the art world that's valuable is also very recognisable. You can't just spend a painting. You can't buy a Lambo or a Ford Falcon hardtop or any other desirable car like that at all by giving someone a painting. So you need to know how to get rid of the artwork you steal, obviously to a dodgy art broker or a wealthy collector. I always wondered how this stolen art ends up if it's displayed in some underground gallery or just kept in storage to be unsold once again or use it like Bitcoin, just, I've got this thing worth $10 million, I owe you $10 million. do you want the painting? Whatever. So tonight I will talk about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum theft. Now, you think that the Great Train Robbery, where they stole over £50 million was a lot, this art heist netted over... $500 million. And it seems like it, it was nowhere near as complicated a task to pull off at all. Oh, and the case is still unsolved. So what is the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum anyway? Well, as the name suggests, it was a museum built by Isabella Stewart Gardner. And it opened in 1903. Isabella was born in New York City, April 14, 1840 to wealthy linen merchants David and Adelia Stewart. She studied art, music, dance, French and Italian. She would move to Paris at the age of 16 and continue her studies. While in Europe, she would befriend classmate Julia Gardner and in 1857, they would visit Italy. While in Milan, they viewed the Gian Giacomo Poldi Pizzoli collection. I think I got that out. Gian Giacomo Poldi Pizzoli collection. And that it was of Renaissance art. Isabella was impressed so much, she vowed that if she ever inherited money, which she was going to for sure, she would set up a similar gallery for people to come and see. What a lovely lady. She returned to New York in 1858 and she met Julia's brother John, or Jack. They called him Jack, as he was known. Jack Gardner. And they would marry in 1860. The couple had one kid that died before he was two, and then Isabella couldn't have any more kids. Depressed, and with her sister-in-law Julia dying, Jack and Isabella travelled around Europe for a time, and then they returned to New York. When Jack's brother Joseph died, his three sons were adopted by John and Isabella. Now that is lovely. They would travel around the world collecting artworks along the way. In 1891, Isabella inherited 1.75 million bucks. Now that's 1891. That's over 100 years ago. That 1.75 million. I'd hate to think how much that is today. Probably billions. Anyway, she would ramp up her collections of paintings and statues plus other art such as photos, silver, ceramics, you name it. Now, when you collect this much stuff, you need a place to put it. I mean, I don't really collect anything, and I find I have no space to move. I can't swing 
Bobby around. Anyone who who has moved to a new house recently and realised how much shit we accumulate that we've got to move from the old place. Well, anyway, her stuff was actually valuable. And even though she lived in a huge house in Boston, that wasn't big enough even after she renovated it. When Jack died in 1898, Isabella bought some land, grabbed an architect and designed a museum modelled on the Renaissance palaces of Venice. Once built, Isabella installed her collection thoughtfully and on the 1st of January 1903, to the sounds of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Champagne and Donuts, the museum was opened. Now, to get a hang of what the place looks like, you can open it browser while you listen maybe i don't know if you're on your phone you should be able to still listen go to www.gardnermuseum.org now if you watch the video on the home page you'll notice a few things such as empty frames on the wall but we'll get to that later the website says isabella stewart gardner collected and carefully displayed a collection comprised of more than 7500 paintings sculptures furniture, textiles, silver, ceramics, 1,500 rare books and 7,000 archival objects from ancient Rome, medieval Europe, Renaissance Italy, Asia, the Islamic world and 19th century France and America. So that's a lot of stuff and it's worth a lot of spondulies. Isabella lived at the museum when she was in town but in 1919, age 79, She had a series of strokes and passed away in 1924, aged 84. So Isabella had plans for the museum for when she passed away. She put aside a shitload of money, it was about a million dollars for its upkeep and stipulated that the permanent collection remained intact. She also gave a stack of money to the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, Industrial School for Crippled and Deformed Children, Animal Rescue League of Boston and the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. So that's lovely. So the museum is kept almost as it was with the permanent collection intact. Administrators would develop the museum over the years and of course they host other shows from other artists from all over the place. Now this museum has some very expensive artworks on display. Now I'm not an art critic, but I have seen the Mona Lisa. Hey, at least I've done that. Now, one piece in the collection was the concert by Vermeer. Isabella bought it in Paris in 1892 for $5,000, but it's supposed value today, and get this, it's about $300 million. Not bad for a painting from around 1660, and I guess the artist didn't make much either. Everybody else has, though. Another painting in the collection is The Storm on the Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt, and and it's his only known seascape. It has a value of around $50 million, and regardless of these values, it's always what someone is willing to pay. So, regardless if they're worth that much or not, the collection in in this museum is worth a lot of money. And being worth a lot of money... It needs to be secure. That means 24-hour guards, alarms, and motion detectors. So now we're going to get to the early hours 
of March 18, 1990. Now, the 17th was St. Patrick's Day and there were a few parties going on around the place. A red Dodge Daytona pulls up at the Palace Road side of the museum. Now, the museum is located on Palace Road, Fenway and Evans Way. The main entrance was on Fenway, but is now on Evans Way. However, there is a side entrance on Palace Road. The two men in the red Dodge sit in their car as if there's people leaving a St. Patrick's Day party around the place. At 1am, security guard Richard Abarth went to the side entrance on Palace Road, opened and closed the door. Now he said this was routine to ensure the door was closed and locked correctly. Abarth finished patrolling the museum and went back to the front desk to switch positions with his security guard mate, the only other person in the museum. Abarth was a 23-year-old Berkeley College of Music dropout and a member of a struggling rock band. This security guard thing was his day job, well, night job. He admits to drinking, smoking pot and taking acid and he even admitted to doing drugs while on shift. But he says he was sober on this night. <laughs> okay. So at 1.24am, the guys that were waiting outside in the red Dodge got out of the car and approached the Palace Road entrance. They buzzed the door. Abarth looked at the intercom monitor. He could see what looked like two policemen. They told Abarth that they were the police and responding to a disturbance in the courtyard. They asked to be let in. Now, protocol would have it that no one was allowed inside unless they were on some list. However, Abarth wasn't sure if this applied to the police. He buzzed open the door and they walked in towards the front desk. One of the policemen said that Abarth looked familiar and that there was a warrant out for his arrest. I suppose being spaced out after time that when a cop says that to you, you'll sort of be a bit shocked wondering what you did last night or what the fuck, God, fuck. So you let your guard down. Well, Abar stood up and was asked for ID, told to turn and face the wall, and they cuffed him. Abarth was now out of reach of the duress alarm that was wired into the police station. So it's a little button under the front desk there. He can just buzz. He then realised that they didn't frisk him before cuffing him. So he thought, shit, these aren't real cops. Seeing that one of the cops had a wax moustache pretty much confirmed they were they were fake. Who buys a wax moustache? Where do you even get one of those? I mean, I guess I could ask Barney Black, but he's so hairy he doesn't need fake hair. Anyway, the other security guard turns up. He gets cuffed and asks why they're being arrested. It is now that they're told it's a robbery. They're both taken down to the basement and cuff the water pipes, and the duct tape is bound around their hands, feet, and head. Now, I shouldn't laugh, but Abarth, he has all this long hair. It looks like he's got natural ringlets, and he's got so much hair, it's really long, and it's just everywhere. So they have taped his head up, and it's all hanging out everywhere. I I think I'll put a photo on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, uh, look, it'd be worse than getting chewing gum in your hair to get all this duct tape taken out. So the robbers go about stealing all the artwork. Now, they've been tracked by motion sensors as they go about their business. They would end up spending 81 minutes in the museum and steal 13 works of art. 
Now, the concert by Vermeer, which isn't really a concert, it's more the painting's more like a dude and a couple of girls jamming in the lounge room. There's the storm on the sea of gallery, gallery. There's the storm on the sea of Galilee by Rembrandt. Now that just shows Jesus and his mates surfing in this big boat. That a lady and gentleman in black by Rembrandt, and that's pretty much describes it. Self-portrait by Rembrandt. Now this is only about five centimeters by four point five centimeters, about two inches by two inches. It's really, really tiny. There's Landscape with an Obelisk by Govert Flink, and it pretty much looks like that too. There's Chez Tortoni by Edouard Monet. There's La Sorte de Passage by Degas. There's Cortege aux Environs de Florence by Degas. Programme for an Artistic Soiree, one, number one by Degas. There's Programme for an Artistic Soiree, two by Degas. And three Mounted Jockeys by Degas. Now, I'm no art critic. I think I told you that before. Or was that a lawyer or or a I don't know. Anyway, I'm no art critic. But the Degas ones, they aren't really that good to tell you the truth. I mean, I could do it better. Anyway, there was also... An ancient Chinese goo. I think that's how you say it. Now, that's like a bronze thing you can sort of drink out of. It looks like a vase. Now, this was from the Shang Dynasty. The last thing was a French imperial eagle finial. And it looked gold, so they thought it was probably gold. Now, this was on top of a Napoleonic flag because they couldn't unscrew the flagpole, so they just took the bit on top. The thieves took a couple of trips to their car during the heist and before they left, they went back to the guards and told them they would be back in a year. I don't know why, but they never did return. In the morning at around 8.15am, police arrived and uncuffed and unduct taped the security guards. Now at this stage, museum administrators were starting to realise the cost of the heist. Now, it has been estimated that the value of the 13 pieces stolen was around $500 million. That's a lot of dollars, so the police call in the FBI. Now, they're in touch with police departments around the world, in France, Japan, Scotland Yard, in the UK. They also talk to private eyes, museum directors and art dealers. Now, they had sketches made of the fake police, and the FBI thought they knew who they were, and it looks like they both ended up dead shortly after. Anyway, they investigated that if it was an inside job and that if Abarth was part of the gang. But they didn't charge him and he's always maintained his innocence. Maybe he'd spoken to someone at a party or something about how lax the security was at the museum. In fact, there were reports that he had previously let in friends to the museum at night time to party, I think, for New Year's Eve. I don't know. What police would find a security CCTV from the previous night of a car backing up to the Palace Road door, a man gets out and buzzes the door. Abarth opens it and lets a guy in. A few minutes later, the guy leaves. Now, Abarth didn't tell the investigators about this at the time of his interview. Was this a dry run to see if he would open the door? One thing I found was apparently he put in his two weeks' notice to leave the job on the night of the heist. 
Now, maybe that's coincidence, but then again, nearly all art heists are inside jobs. I really don't think he had anything to do with the robbery other than maybe stupidly talking about the security of the place and, of course, he's been letting people in. I think if he did have something to do with it, he would have been silent six feet under or, I don't know, what do they do in New York? They put you in concrete shoes? I don't know. Anyway, there was a mafia guy, and this is getting closer to the mark, called Carmelo Molino. Now, he had a car workshop not far from the museum, He ran this as a front to his cocaine business. Now, he was arrested in 1999 for attempting to rob an armoured car. He had a plea bargain denied, and he also denied knowing where the Gardner artworks were, but he did say they were last seen in Philadelphia. Previously, he had offered to tell them the whereabouts of a $5,000 painting stolen from the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Museum in Cambridge. So he did have form in the art theft area. Still, he was never charged. Now, some of the artwork was crudely cut out of the frames, which you would you would think a professional art thief wouldn't do. Also, they left behind several very valuable pieces, even though they had 81 minutes in the place. Empty frames still hang at the museum, waiting for the return of the artwork. So if you go online and you have a look at the museum website, you will see all this. One mystery is that the Monet was on a first floor gallery. The motion sensors detected Abarth on his rounds before the fake cops were there. Now, they didn't detect anything after that. So how did the painting get stolen without detection? Did Abarth take it while on his rounds and move it to another location? So the FBI reckoned they had the case solved in 2013. They didn't release the names of the thieves because of the statute of limitations on the case. They suspected mobster Robbie Donati was involved. However, he was murdered not long after the heist. His mate Robert Gentile was recently picked up for selling guns but was questioned over the robbery and he denied having anything to do with it. There were theories that the IRA were involved with the art art theft and it's in Ireland. But a few years ago, the FBI finally named who they thought had pulled off the heist. They reckon it was two of Camelo Molino's goons, George Resfelda and Lenny DiMazio. If you Google Resfelda, <laughs> he's a funny looking cunt. He's got this bowl cut. It looks like he's got the same hair as when he was a kitty crim. DiMuzio, he's got a moustache on him that Merv Hughes would be proud of. We should call him Lenny Mustachio. Anyway, Reisfelder and DiMuzio apparently were the two fake cops. Reisfelder died from a drug overdose not long after the heist and DiMuzio was murdered not long after. I would say both deaths would be suspicious maybe just to keep their mouths shut. Molino died in 2005 from cancer, so all the main players are dead. There is currently a $5 million reward out for the recovery of the artwork, and at times it is increased to $10 million. Still, there's no trace of any of the items. No one has been charged. There's just nothing. You would think for $10 million, somebody would have come forward. But maybe the art has been hidden and whoever hid it is dead. So it might never ever be found.
This is truly a mystery of our times. Now, for a real in-depth look at the robbery, and as suggested by Beck Jones the other night while we grabbed the beer and pulled up a deck chair, search for the Last Scene podcast. Now, this week's episode, I didn't go too much detail because of the events of the week, but Beck reckons this is a really good podcast, so you can get more detail off the Last Scene podcast. So, to end the show on a slightly lighter note, because the start of the show was a bit depressing. So now we get to the shout-outs for Patreon, and it's a big thank you to Nina from Already Gone Podcast and her other one, Don't Talk to Strangers. If you haven't heard these, I recommend you have a listen. I think you'll love Nina's voice. It's so much more soothing than mine, and a big shout-out to Sammy, who falls to sleep to my my voice apparently anyway where are we up to we also have Hans thank you very much and Boomvagalunga we've got Matt Bradford thanks so much Matt we also have Arsenic Soap as a new patron not sure if it's Mr or Mrs Soap but thank you now we've got one from Van Morrison now I don't know if it's the famous rock star and one of my favourite songs is Brown Eyed Girl but Boomfuckalunga Van. And did I mention Kathy last week? Anyway, thank you so much for all your support. Thank you to all the present and past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference. And as you know, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. Keep it ad-free, as I know you don't like ads, and neither do I. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. Check out the levels and the rewards. I will be reaching out to anyone who has qualified last month for an award. I'll I'll send you an email for t-shirts or mugs and I'll post out the stickers as well. Alternatively, you can do a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland, which John Kelly did this week. Thank you so much, John and Boomfuckalunga. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as T-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, fantastic tote bags. You all know my favourites are the mugs of rage. All available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Remember, listeners, don't order black mugs until further notice. I say this every week. I should update it, but I haven't. I can't take them down without taking all of them down. Anyway, white mugs. There were a few purchases this week, so thank you very much. And boom, fuckalunga. I also have keychains, lapel pins, stickers, and a couple of beer koozies, which you need to contact me directly for. I do have a few stickers, but more are going to be ordered. That can be done by emailing me, cambo, at truecrimeisland.com. That's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else, such as case requests or just to say, boom, fuckalunga. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review, tell your friends, family and workmates about the island. If they don't know how to tune in, show them, because there's a huge podcast world out there. It's not just the island, there's plenty of others. Search for True Crime Island on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and join the closed group on Facebook. We do have a promo this week. Now, this is for my mate, Mike Morford, or Morph, as he's known. You may know him from Criminology Podcast. Well, he's got a new podcast out called Three Men and a Mystery. So please listen to the promo at the end of the show. So that's 
That's about it for the show tonight. Lots of love to, <laughs> lots of love to Maggie James. I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fuck Welcome to Three Men in a Mystery. I'm one of your hosts, John Lord. And this is Mike Morford. And I'm Gray Hughes. July 31st, 1999. Teenagers J.B. Hilton Green Beasley and her friend Tracy Howlett got lost on their way to a party. They wound up in Ozark, Alabama. They used another payphone to call Tracy's mother to let them know they had been lost but were now heading home. However, they would never get home. The next morning, the car was found by local police. An investigator figures out there's a latch release for the trunk inside the car. He opens it. In the trunk were the bodies of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. They had each been shot in the head. That was almost 20 years ago. For me personally, it's a mystery that shouldn't be a mystery. It's time for answers for the families of these two young girls. We do have DNA in this case. There is a very important aspect. There is a big company that's been hitting the news for solving numerous cases using genealogy matches based off DNA information. And they are called Parabon Nanolabs. And we have already been in contact with them. You want to tell us a little bit about that, Mike? If that DNA is from the killer, there's a way to track that back to the likely donor. And I think that's what Parabon can do in this case. One of the things we'd like to do is help facilitate that if we can. And hopefully get Parabon in touch with the proper authorities, see if they can work together and move this case forward. I think it's very important to look at all cases starting with known facts and void of wild speculation. That, that allows people to speculate reasonably based on a foundation of accurate visual and technical information. We've got Gray, who's a very detail-oriented technical expert when it comes to understanding maps, doing 3D recreations. We've got Morph, who is such a good people person. He's able to reach out, try to make contact. And when he does, once he gets people talking, there's some pretty amazing things that happen. So... I think paralleling our three strong suits is going to bring something very different to this podcast than we've seen in the true crime podcast space. Subscribe to the podcast right now. We are three men in a mystery.